Good morning. And a couple of announcements. Uh, the Let's Talk we did some time ago on domestic violence. Everybody remember that? After we showed the stats on domestic violence in the church. We then uh, went through some potential reasons why that is, particularly exploring two constructs on how we view God's law. We have the DVDs available for free out there. There's a whole bunch of them. To do. These are great just to take and hand to people to share and get them to watch. And it'll really help them construct not only the problem of domestic violence in the church, but the two ways that we view God's law and what those consequences are for viewing God's law. All right, let's, uh, let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for your kingdom of love and your methods of love and your principles of love. We, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to join together in fellowship. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds. We thank you that Margaret did well through her surgery, and we pray that your spirit and your, your angels will be with her and that she will continue to recover and do well uh, in this uh, healing process. We also want to remember the families of those who have been uh, so traumatized by what's happened up in Connecticut. Um, and Lord, this is uh, clearly uh, signs of what's happening at the end, that the hearts of many shall grow cold. Mm-hmm. Lord, we ask that uh, in this time that we can be witnesses to show that you have a kingdom where we don't have to be safe by people on the corner with uh, guns patrolling, that we have a, you have a kingdom in which people really love each other more than they love self. We pray that we can be effective in sharing this truth with others, and we pray comfort and healing for the broken hearts up in Connecticut this week. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 13 in our quarterly Growing in Christ, and the title this week is When All Things Become New. And someone read the memory text for us, please, Revelation 21.4, Revelation 21.4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Wow, after what happened in Connecticut this week, what a, what a text for us to, 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 to start on. We'll wipe away all the tears. When you hear this, what do you think? When you hear this promise? Wonderful, she says. When will all the tears be wiped away? When? At his coming. At his coming? Before or after the millennium? After the millennium. Do you think, though, after the millennium, there'll be a few more tears to be shed by by people? Yeah, yeah. Um, Think about the implication about this sentence. So when it's all done, it says in here, there will be, not only will there be no more death, there'll be no more sorrow or crying. What does that, if you believe this is true, rule out? Eternal burning hell. I mean, think it through. If there's an eternal burning hell, won't there be an eternity of suffering and crying? By at least some of God's children somewhere. But if there really is true that there is no more sorrow and no more crying, there can't be a place of eternal torment. That's pretty profound, isn't it? If it was true, the Bible says so. Yes. Well, you know, there are some people that believe in eternal burning hell. This text would fly in the face of that. This text would fly in the face of that. We might come to that later as we go on. Um, As we talk about the events in Revelation 20 through 22, which is what we're going to study today, any particular ideas or principles that we should keep in mind before we get into the, the details? Do we know for certain what everything means? No. No. This is both highly symbolic language and future un, you know, events that have not yet happened. M- meaning that it's open to misunderstanding because it's both symbolic in language and it yet hasn't happened. So if someone believes different than we or you do about some aspect of these texts, does that mean they're not saved? Absolutely not. Should we make a belief about these verses a test of fellowship? No. Should we get upset or angry if someone doesn't understand the verses the way we do? No. Can, can we explore different ideas about the future without getting upset with each other? And I say this because I've had times when I've had tried to have conversations like this where I haven't been able to have a conversation where I ask questions of somebody's ideas where they have, where they don't, they don't start getting upset. Can we have a conversation because these are symbolic, these are uh, not yet happened, that we can actually honestly inquire, question each other in a loving and friendly way? Can we do that in here? 
And then as we do that, are there any baseline points, um, parameters, if you will, uh, lines where we don't want to color outside of, as we go into this, that we can know these are our, our, our safe zone. If we stay inside those, we're in a safe zone. How about God's character of love? Yeah. Whatever our interpretations are, if we're in harmony with God's methods and principles of love, his character of love is revealed in Jesus, then then we're in a safe zone. If we we start having interpretations that that make God out to be vindictive or or punitive or or severe or unloving in some way, might that be dangerous to go there? Yeah. So so regardless of how we interpret these events, we can always come back and say, well, okay, uh, is God continued to be loving and, and, and consistent with the character Jesus revealed? Maybe it's possible. We'll see what happens. All right, Sunday's lesson. Let's turn together and read Revelation chapter 20 together. Revelation chapter 20 together, okay? And then we're going to, this will be the basis for much of our class today. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked the seal over over him, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones which were seated... I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, uh, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sands of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the, 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 the uh, Bible of reference for much of our class today. Any thoughts about that? Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with this, the millennium, the thousand years. What do you understand this to be? Or should I say, when do you understand the thousand years? According to what we've read, and you can pull in other references, I'll ask you to, when does the thousand years begin? The beginning of that period, time period. When does it begin? Second coming, because it says in here that, that the dead in Christ rise, the wicked dead did not live again until the thousand years were over. So it gives you a beginning point, and it also gives you an ending point, and the ending point will be, when the wicked dead are raised, okay, the thousand years will be over, right? Yeah, everybody with me so far? Okay. Um, and the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, that beginning, of course, coincides with the second advent of Christ. The dead in Christ will be resurrected to join the faithful living, and both groups will be taken to heaven. The wicked living at that, uh, at that time of Christ's advent will be slain by the brightness of his coming, Second Thessalonians 2.8, and the desolate earth will become a prison house of Satan who will be bound for a thousand years, as it were, in a chains of circumstances. The reason given for Satan's imprisonment is just so that he might uh, deceive the nations no longer, or not deceive the nations any longer. Uh, many see a symbolic link between the banishment of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement and the circumstances of Satan during the millennium. And we're going to come talk about that scapegoat situation in a minute. Um, so how is Satan Bound. What do you understand this bottomless pit to be, this, uh, this great abyss? What do you understand it to be? How do you describe it? What's going on? 
Any thoughts? I like that. Hear what she said? Do, do you consider when you read this description of the abyss and then you read Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, the earth was void and without form and darkness was over the face of the deep. And those words there, if you look at the Greek uh, Old Testament are the same, the abyss. They're the, it's a deep black abyss. So do you think possibly that what this is describing, after Christ comes, he leaves does the Holy Spirit stay here on earth during that time? No. Does any member of God's agency stay here? So what do you think happens to creation when God lets go of it? it dies. Chaos. Chaos. Yeah. So do you think that the earth goes back to the way it was before creation? I think this was describing here, and Satan is left here. Yes, uh, Kathy. Well, when it says that he was chained for a thousand years, I think that also could be symbolic because there is no one for him to interact with. So he's, he's chained, he's barred from any interaction, which is what he's all about, is trying to... So, but he has all his angels, doesn't he? Yeah. But that's all right. They're already with him. They're already... So, so then the next question, next question. Why do you think God doesn't allow the wicked humans to live on earth during that thousand years. Because that's what you're suggesting. The, the, the Bible says it. They're not alive. Why, why are the wicked humans not alive? It's a time of reflection so that he can truly come face to face with himself and what he's done. And the Did you hear what she's saying? It's a time of reflection. Does the scripture say it's a time of reflection? No, scripture says we can't tempt anymore. Uh, what's your thought, Rachel? When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he did it because the cry of it had come up to him in heaven, and he's allowing the misery of the wicked to end. Okay, so you're seeing this as mercy. Yes. Okay, I like where you're going with this. Um, and think, think it through. You've already d- said that the Holy Spirit is not here on earth anymore at this time. It what would be a the- horrible thing to live in that earth during that time. What, if it's not a black hole where... Um, you know, human beings can't dwell in a gravity well. They can't live in a gravity well like that. So if it's not a black hole, if it's just a, a dead planet, what would it be like to live on an earth without God's presence and only Satan's influence? What would it be like? Chaos. Pardon? Chaos. Truly hell on earth. Truly hell on earth. And so I think one answer to the question is why there's no humans left on earth. God loves them too much. He loves them too much to be in torment for a thousand years which would be just misery and torment for a thousand years. He loves them too much. I think possibly the other answer is, I, I really think there is a physical collapse of planet Earth when God pu- re- pulls back his presence. I think it really reverts back to what it was. This is my view. And again, it, you, you don't have to agree. We can have different views on this. Um, but my view is it reverts back to like it was before Genesis 1. And humans can't live in that environment. So it's physically not possible for them to live either. I think it's mercy and not possible. Yes. I think it gives Satan and his angels a chance to really reflect and say, we probably should have thought this thing through from the beginning. Well, you know, that's, that's certainly a, a possibility, and it's often been presented that way. And, and I think that, I don't dispute that, but I think that maybe if we focus only there, it, it maybe we miss a couple of these other, I think, which are more deeper, more passionate points that God in love and mercy um, doesn't want the, his children, his human family, to be tormented for a thousand years. So he... Allows them not to be there. Yes, Russell. If we are to believe biblical prophecy, then if Satan is reflecting for a thousand years and he still goes out and tempts the nations a thousand years later, then that, that time of reflection wasn't very well spent. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't find that the Bible actually says it's a time for his reflection. This is an interpretation put on by some to try to explain the thousand years that Satan gets to, you know, you know, look in the mirror for a thousand years. But it actually says so he can't tempt the nations, which to me means he can't um, harass the people. The people are protected from him, his harassment and his, his uh, infliction of misery. Look what he did to Job when he had a chance. What would he do to the people if they were still available to him for a thousand years? Yes, Linda. I doubt they could survive even because at the second coming it says the firmament rolls up like a scroll which if you think of that as atmosphere, they may just simply not be able to exist in this. I think that's what actually is happening, that, is, that the earth is actually reverting back to before he made the firmament. It's reverting back to, to where it was in this state of chaos, a deep black hole, an abyss. I, I agree with you. I think that's what's actually being described. Yes. 
I'm often wondering why does it take a thousand years? Yeah, we'll come to that in a second if you if you want. Yes. Well, you know, we've often talked about how if we do something wrong, it sears our conscience, and um, I, I think Satan and his angels are beyond the point of even the ability to reflect on on anything. I think they have. I mean, if, if they were savable in any way, they would have been saved. Right. So a thousand years, they wouldn't be reflecting on, oh, I really blew it. Oh, man. They'd be reflecting on how unfair God is and how mean he is and how wrong he is. And, and, and it would only solidify them in their hatred of God. A day is like a thousand years. So it's only going to be a day in heaven, right? Yes, Lisa. During the time of the end, uh, God's spirit is withdrawn from the earth, and so that time period would probably be what it would be like if he didn't put an end to the suffering uh, after the saints go to heaven. Tim? Um, it seems to me that like Satan and his angels only have one mission, seek and destroy, uh, convert to their side, if you will. So if he's just sitting around with a bunch of people that look like he does, and he doesn't care about them, that seems to be like a heck of a prison to me because he's got nothing to do anymore. Do you know there are human beings who actually get pleasure out of torturing other human beings and killing them? What do you think Satan gets pleasure out of? Misrepresenting God, but also I think he gets pleasure out of torturing and killing. I really do. Yes, in the back. Christopher was asking a question um, on if the earth was how you guys were explaining it there and people were raised later, later what would the environment be? Yeah, after the thousand years, obviously things are going to be shifting back in a different direction with Christ because Christ and the Holy Spirit and God come back again. And as they come back, their sustaining power comes back again. And so things would actually be in a different format at that time. I think it would probably be the earth would be just like he raises the dead back in, and we'll get to this later, he raises the dead in the, in the, in the fallen bodies that they have, that the earth is reconstituted in its state as it was when he came the second time. So I think what we're finding is when Christ comes, the earth is reverting and takes the saints away and he leaves his presence, the earth collapses back into itself into a black hole. When he comes back again at the end of the thousand years, the black hole dissipates and the earth is reconstituted in where it was at the beginning of the thousand years. Will the sun be turned off? Will the sun be turned off? I think during the thousand years, yes. My view is yes. But that's just my view. I think in a thousand years it won't it won't be shining. I think the whole the whole solar system collapses in on itself. Uh, if you if you put this together with Genesis the first chapter, it says in Genesis one the earth was void without form and darkness covered the face of the deep. And then he says let there be light. But then on day four he says let's make the sun moon and stars. And then science tells us that the the rocks on earth, the inanimate non living materials on earth, are billions of years old, as well as the solar system. And, and some people suggest that Genesis is talking about creation of the entire cosmos. But in Job chapter 38, it says that the angels sang together for joy when the earth was founded. So the, the Genesis tells us that there was already intelligent beings in the universe when, when God created earth. So the, Genesis is not an account of the whole cosmos. Genesis is an account of earth. And so my view is that there was a black hole in the corner of the Milky Way. And on Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. The black hole dissipated, and the light of the Milky Way is shining through. And on day 4, he takes and creates from the matter that was in the mass of the black hole, he spins out Earth, and then he spins out the planets of our solar system, Venus, Mercury, Mars, the stars of our solar system, and the sun and moon. So we have now a, a, a understanding of Scripture that is consistent with the world and science, and God is still creator, but he created much of the universe billions of years ago. Earth has been created a short time ago. Um, and it all still fits. And then we get back to the abyss, and we see God's presence withdrawn. Things collapse in on itself again. And it's not just a time I, I think that Satan reflects. I think it's actually something else. It's a, it's a thousand years for Satan to try and do what God did in seven days. That's what I was going to comment on, too, because the angels and Satan don't need food. Right. And I, I think that I don't know how far to take it in thinking that, that God would completely remove everything from the earth. That it would all, I would almost think it would stay in that distorted state from when Jesus came. And then that would be what he'd be using the thousand years for, trying to rebuild everything. Back. I think exactly. I think, I think this is an opportunity. It's all about God giving evidence. Satan alleged equality with God. Uh, yeah, and, and I think he puts it back and says, okay, I've got my people off the earth. 
you've got a thousand years to see if you can do something better than I did. Do it. And after a thousand years, we come back and Satan has not been able to do one thing. Just further evidence that he is not God and just confirms in the minds of all the intelligences that he is not a creating being. Just further evidence of it all. All righty. Um, so, so then to this question, last week we explored symbolism of the Old Testament sanctuary service. Do you think, and this week we're exploring symbolism of Bible prophecy. Do you think there's a connection between the two symbols, the, sim, the two symbolic, you know, symbolism of prophecy, symbolism of sanctuary? Uh, in, is the millennium referenced in the Old Testament sanctuary? And the paragraph gave you a clue. What about the Day of Atonement? What happens on the Day of Atonement? High priest goes where? And then on the same day, he, he comes out from the most holy place and does what? Same day, still, he still goes in, but he also comes out and does what? Places the sins on the scapegoat and sends them out to the world. That's an interpretation. <laughs> he places his hands on the scapegoat. <clears throat> and many, and many, and probably most, would conceptualize that as placing sins on the scapegoat. Um, but the placing the sins is an interpretation. He places his hands on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat is led out into the wilderness. And then, sometime later, there's another feast to end the annual cycle. And the feast that ends the annual cycle is? The Feast of Tabernacles, the where we tabernacle with God. Okay? So what's the, what's the potential interpretation? High priest uh, represents Christ working in heaven to bring atone at one meant working to bring a people back into unity and one as one to cleanse a people from rebellion to cleanse hearts and minds and restore us into one meant when he finishes that work he leaves the most holy place he and comes to where the people are he left the the old, the old testament he left the holy place and come out to where the people are he comes out of heaven comes back to where we are second coming and then Hands on the head of the scapegoat. And, and, and we'll talk about the meaning of that in a second. And then the wilderness, thousand years. And then after the thousand years, there's tabernacling. Comes back and all sin is removed and we tabernacle for eternity with God. So potentially this could be uh, part of the meaning. So let's go then to the scapegoat. Were sins placed on the head of the scapegoat? Bad deeds. Bad deeds that people di- did were placed on the scapegoat. Or was this instead a metaphorical acknowledgement that the scapegoat was the source of the lies? It's his fault. Sin and, and pain and suffering were not God's doing. They came out from the enemy. And everyone now recognizes it's on your head, not on God's head. Responsible. You're responsible, not God. Well, let's look in, a, um, let's give some text here. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Now get this next two verses. Those who see you stare at you and ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert and overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home? Ah, is this the man? Wow. What's happening here? There's an awareness dawning, isn't it? We're seeing the evil one for who he's the one that did all this. He's not God. He tried to put himself up as equal as God. He tried to say that, 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 that he was going to ascend to the utmost heights. He tried to set himself up as Thessalonians said, in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. But he's the one who brought the earth low. He's the one who made the world a desert. We are the captives that are not set free by and we And he's the one who took people captive. And he wouldn't let go. Christ had to come and break the chains to set us free. I think that the, the meaning on the scapegoat... Now, let me give you another text. And you notice the description there. So I think the laying on of hands symbolizes this on the head. It's on your head that these things rest. The responsibility, not the sins. Now, somebody look up Leviticus 24.14. And I want somebody else to read this for us. And Leviticus 24.14, raise your hand when you get it. Take outside the camp him who has cursed... 
Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Now listen, listen, listen. Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him, all who heard the blasphemy, all who heard the lies, all who heard the distortions, all those who heard this, lay your hands on his head and stone him. Judgment. So if you didn't hear the lies, you don't, you don't put your hands on his head. Only those who heard the lies put their hands on the head. Are they transferring their sins to this guy? Well, you know, I, I cheated on my wife last week, so I'll put my hands on this guy's head. This is what's happening? No, what's happening here? Are sins being transferred? You're a liar. And those lies are on you. We see you for the liar and fraud that you are. Returning the ownership. Exactly. Returning the ownership. The origin, the responsibility of the lies to whether we now see God is righteous. And we now see that you're a liar. This is what I think is happening here. There's no sin-bearing going on here. You see, that sin-bearing idea comes out of paganism and penal substitutionary theology with appeasement requirements and blood payments and all that distortion of the, of the symbols. You won't find, because there's other distortion that goes in built into that whole thing. When they, during the annual all-year-long confession of sins on the head of the lamb and or the pigeon and or whatever sacrificial animal they used, that the blood would be taken into the sanctuary or the priest would eat the meat of it, there was this idea put forth by some interpreters that sin was transferred to the sanctuary. The sanctuary has now been contaminated and the sanctuary needs to be cleansed. Show me in Scripture any place that the blood of the sacrificial animal ever contaminates anything. It never does. Every time the blood of the sacrificial animal touches anything, it becomes holy. It becomes holy. Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, where is the blood to be applied according to Christ? It's a metaphor. The life is in the blood of the sacrifice. And so the life is symbolic of the life of Christ. That's what, when you think blood, think life of Christ. And the life of Christ is to be applied. Does the life of Christ contaminate with sin? Now, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, he bore our sinfulness. Our sinful condition, our sinful state, he bore. And he cured it. He transformed it. He healed it. He overcame it. He destroyed it. As it says in Thessalonians, excuse me, in Timothy, that by his death he might destroy, well, that's his Hebrews, by his death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. But in Timothy, that... Um, by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And in First John, that by his death, he might destroy the devil's work. Notice what he's destroying. What The devil's work, the power of death, and he's destroying death itself. You see? So the blood, you, know, you can conceptualize it any way you want. I just reject the idea that when, given the history of what Christ has achieved for us, that sin won and Christ got polluted. I just reject that idea. Christ won. He destroyed sin. He purified humanity in his person. And he's the source of salvation. Hebrews 5.8. He's the source of salvation for all who obey him. So once he was made perfect, it says. So anyway, so I like this view that at the end of time, this is symbolic. The thousand years, we recognize Satan for the liar, fraud, and deceiver he is. And we hold him responsible, not Christ and not God. For the pain and suffering. Is there anything in Mrs. White that um, supports that? It depends on how you interpret. Um, Mrs. White um, wrote a lot of symbolic language. Right. Just like the scripture writes a lot of symbolic language. And so her language is a subject to a lot of interpretation. And so it can be interpreted in a lot of ways, and people look to her writings to try to support various views, just as they take the scriptures to support various views. I think this is where you have to bring in as many pieces of the puzzle as possible, and you have to have those boundaries that you can't go beyond. And if we turn God into a deity that looks like Baal, a deity that must be appeased, we've crossed the line. In the scriptures, God, and I can tell you, when you look at Old Testament sanctuary service, even to the to the, the Jewish people who who still believe in that kind of thing, they will tell you that never in the sanctuary service was there ever appeasement. There was never appeasement in that process. 
It was all about healing and, and, and reconciliation. Yom Kippur, day of reconciliation, healing, unity. Monday's lesson, let's go to Monday's lesson. Revelation 24. Somebody read for us 24. Chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, and those who sat on them were allowed to judge. Then I saw the souls of those whose heads had been cut off because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its statue, and were not branded on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and ruled with Christ for 1,000 years. So the key, the key portion of that, to me, is that I want to look at is I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. What does it mean? What are interpretations you've heard? Have you heard the interpretation that during the thousand years you get the privilege of sitting in committee and reviewing the records of the wicked and deciding how long each person must suffer in the flames before God kills them? You've not heard this? Oh, come on. This is a popular teaching. How do you like that view? Well, before we actually go on to explore that view a little farther, let me uh, read you from some different translations. We've already read the NIV. Here's the good news of the same. So the NIV said, had been given authority to judge. This is the good news. Then I saw thrones, and those who sat on them were given the power to judge. We'll get two more more versions here in a second. But do you hear authority and power differently? Authority can be they're, they're representing the government and it is their, their, like a judge here in the court has the authority of the state, the authority of the, of the celestial government to judge. That could be one way, that's authority. But power, power could also mean authority, but could power also mean ability? They were now given the, the power to make judgment, the ability to make judgment. Ah, well, let's go to the next version. This is an American Standard Version. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. Oh, wait a minute, judgment given unto them. Well, now that leaves it open, doesn't it? It could mean they were given the authority to judge as a, as a ruling authority, but it also means they were given ability. They were given the ability to the discernment, wisdom. Judgment was given unto them. Oh, now we're getting, let's go to the last one, New King James Version. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Was committed to them. Interesting. You notice his words? So does it mean that they are judicial agents determining guilt and innocence in the judgment and meeting out properly imposed penalties? Is that what's happening here being described? Because I can tell you there's a large body of believers that believes that's exactly what's going to happen in the hereafter. Yes? Judgment doesn't necessarily mean you're deciding between good and evil. It doesn't mean that you're just coming to an understanding of what's going on. Okay, so that's the next one. Or does it mean they're given ability, the power to rightly judge what has happened in the great controversy and why the wicked experience what they experience? See, that could, that's exactly what you're saying. So one view is they sit as the judges determining guilt and innocence and determining and or if not guilt and innocence, that's determined by God. And then the, the then we are the jury that determines punishment. That's what we're determining. Or, we're given the ability to discern what's really happened in the great controversy. What, has, what God has been dealing with. What are the obstacles Satan's thrown in his way? What the, what the people, and we understand clearly why those that are lost are lost. We discern it properly. Yes? Didn't Christ say that he does not judge? And so if we say that we're going to, are we trying to put ourselves higher than Christ? Christ actually did say that. I did not come to judge, and, I, and I'm not going to judge. The very words that I spoke... That will be your judge. What do you say? What are you saying is going to be your judge then? The truth. The truth itself, which means, and then he says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the good man brings forth good of the good stored up, the evil man brings forth evil, the evil stored up. What's he saying is ultimately going to be your judge in the end? Your very condition. The reality of your heart condition judges you. You either have been transformed, the law written on the heart and mind, renewed to be like Christ, or you have been hardened in rebellion and selfishness, and that condition itself judges you. I don't have to do it. That's what he's... Great, great point. Yeah, Tim. It's the reverse of what happens at the tree, because at the tree, their <laughs> eyes are opened, and they start judging good and evil, and in the end, it goes back to letting the truth judge itself. I like, I think, I think I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because I think at the end, um, we will always still have a knowledge of good and evil, won't we? Right, but. We will never have that knowledge taken away. Trying to determine it. 
I don't know if it makes sense. You said it to me just a second ago that we'll revert back to seeing it through God's eyes. Right. Like we will understand of, it from God's instead okay. of seeing it through the, the eyes of a lie. Okay, so we'll see good and evil properly rather than through the distorted lens that happened in Eden. I got you. Okay. Russell. What in oh, go ahead. What and who will be judged during the thousand years? He says, what and who will be judged during the thousand years? That's a good question. Russell? Won't there be some who still, after a thousand years of discernment and, and judgment, still have some questions left? Well, you know, I, I, again, this is all hypothetical and speculative, and, you know, we don't know. Uh, I think it's very possible, though. I'm open to that very comfortably, that there can be people that um, may really doubt that their son their spouse, their parent, their best friend that, that they were giving Bible studies to the night that they got in a car wreck and died really weren't on the Lord's side. I just can't believe that. And, and I, I, I see the record, Lord, but I, I know, I, know I, I could feel their heart. I know where they were. And we'll come, and we'll come to the, leave that, that question hanging because it comes up in, in the end of the thousand years. Um, but if the judgment, let me ask you guys this question. Because this may go, go to, to a question by um, Martin as well. If the judgment is actually created beings sitting around in committee, weighing evidences for or against individuals, determining either guilt or innocence, or accepting God's found, finding of guilt, and then just determining punishment and length of punishment, if that was really what's happening, what would this say about God's government and law? What kind of a government would this be? What kind of a law would it be? Would it not be this Roman? It's a Roman government. It's a Roman law. It's imposed, put upon, must be enforced. We've just formed the beast. That's what it would mean. So we'd be like the jury then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I saw a hand somewhere else back there. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, my understanding is that before Jesus comes, there's a time of trouble. Um, even the Spirit of Prophecy says uh, our sins go off into the land of forgetfulness. We can't remember our own sins. So God has to cast those out of his mind completely. His sanctuary is cleansed in regard to the saints. And when we get to heaven and we're going to be judging, I don't want to know anybody's sin. <laughs> if I, you see what I'm saying? I don't want to remember the sins of people that I've come in contact throughout my life, I don't want to remember anybody. Do you really want to be in a 3D holiday? How could I be a judge? I don't want to look at books for people I've sinned. The other question I have is, if you have doubt about what God has done, whether it's right or wrong, how in the world is he ever going to convince you that he did what was right? You'll always have that doubt throughout eternity. Actually, I think we're going to come to that question. And why? The, and this is, I think, goes exactly why the wicked are raised uh, at the end of the thousand years, to answer that question. We'll, we'll come to it. Um, but but we're, this, this idea of God's law, imposed or natural, does it make a difference? And why does it make a difference how we see it? Well, let's say that you broke both laws by speeding rapidly. And uh, so you're breaking an imposed law and you're breaking a natural law when you run off the road and break the law of physics when your body careens into a tree at high impact. So you're, you're, you're breaking laws of natural laws and you're breaking the speed limit laws. And now you're, you're broken and laying the side of the road. Um, do you really want to see a judge at that time or ever? Do you want to see EMT and a doctor? If we present God as a judge, and we've broken the law, and we're and, and we're injured, we're broken. Do we want to? Do we want to be taken to the judge? Do you want to be taken to the doctor? Yes. This this whole construct, how we see God, makes a huge difference in the willingness of people to go to Him and say, as David did, "Search me and see the wicked way in me, created me a clean heart, O God." But if you believe He's the enforcer of punishments, you don't want Him to see the wicked way. And so I think this is huge to, to bringing people to the point of genuine transformation that they have to see God as the one who loves them, who died for them, who wants to heal them, who wants to transform them, and he is not the source of their suffering and punishment. Uh, in the back verse, Wendell, and then Linda. I would hope that after that person was made well by accommodation of whatever, 
that they would be given good judgment so they didn't do it again and endanger my life and the life of my family. Yeah, and haven't you known people that have had these very types of things by maybe doing drugs or, or other types of things where they've been violating both imposed law and natural law and, 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 and they never actually get that good judgment? Yeah. I'd like to draw a relationship between the millennium and the Sabbath because there's seven days in a week for a week with the last day being Sabbath and there's 7,000 years with the last thousand being the millennium. I propose that the purpose of the Sabbath and the millennium are the same and that is a period of time of reflection. God For the devil? What? Well, for the devil to reflect or for the saints to reflect? I'm talking about the saints. I, thank you. I just want to clarify that. I knew you were. You know, that's, that's a, the Sabbath is a little symbol to me of the millennium. It is a time of reflection and decision uh, about God's purpose, God's capability, God's character and versus evil. And on the Sabbath, we have a little chance to get away from everything and reflect on that. No, I, I, I think there is a parallel there. Thank you. Um, you have somebody? No? Okay, in the back. Um, I think what she's saying easily works in with what you're saying about the devil undoing creation. Because as I understand it, the Sabbath is both a time for us to reflect on the salvation to come, as well as a commemoration of creation. Uh, As I understand it, when the three angels message talks about the Sabbath, it's quoting from the Ten Commandments, and it's supposed to be a commemoration of creation. So I think that what you're saying about creation being undone during that thousand years, and us being able to reflect as we go on the Sabbath, we could very well be reflecting on what you're saying about the devil undoing creation. Yeah, have you ever uh, considered a, an argument where two people are arguing over whether this particular product will work to do X or will it not work to do X? And they, and they argue and argue and argue, and why do you say, well, let's just see, let's just do it and see, right? Okay, there's this argument about God's methods that Satan has been arguing for years, that they don't work, he's abusive, da, da, and there's the argument, my methods are better than God's and so forth and so on. A thousand years is going to say, look, I'm pulling back. I'm not here anymore. My methods are not here anymore. My spirit's not here anymore. My angels aren't here anymore. My children aren't here anymore. We're not here. Our methods are not being used anymore. So all yours, and then we'll see what happens. See? See what happens. And, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful revelation that God's laws are the laws that life is actually built and constructed to operate upon. And outside of those, deviations from those, Lawlessness, the wages of lawlessness, right? Sin is lawlessness, and the wages of lawlessness is that life can't operate there. It doesn't exist, doesn't happen, it's destroyed. Yeah, I saw a hand over here. Epi. Oh, right there, Epi, yes. I think in the Old Testament, the word judgment is a positive thing because God says, I love judgment, I hate robbery for burnt offering. And He tells the children of Israel, do just judgment, meaning justice. Judge the fatherless. In other words, do the right thing. Reward the good. Exactly. Exactly. No, do, do the right thing. I like that. That's righteousness, justice, same thing. Exactly. Um, about, we also talked about God being judged righteous by the universe at, at the cross, <clears throat> and it's left for us to, to judge him righteous also. And then... Romans 3.4 goes back to Psalms 51.4 where, where David says uh, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Meaning that like we've said before that, that it's the condition that you're in at the time. That that's the judgment is where you are. What do you think it means that death and Hades are to be thrown into the lake of fire? What does that mean? To throw death and Hades into the lake of fire. What's that symbolically trying to say are going to happen to death and Hades? They're going to be destroyed, okay? So could you say death is going to be killed? Well, yeah, I think you can. That's what it's saying, isn't it? So think it through with me. How do you kill death? With life. With life. Life kills death, doesn't it? 
So then what is this fire that kills death? The presence of God's incredible glory. There you go. And Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him and thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 stand in this fire. This is what it's saying that one day, and it says in Revelation 22, there'll be no need for the sun and moon to light this place because God's presence will be his light. One day God's life-giving, glorious presence will flow around this planet and this universe as it always used to and death will be no more because life lives there. This is what it's saying. This is not a place of, of, of burning sulfur, as one of the, as the NIV said, the, the word sulfur. The, the Greek for sulfur is, um, oh, let's see. Um, theon, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Russell. Theon. That's what it is. The Greek word theon is translated here sulfur or eternal fire. Theon, it's the, it's the neutered version of the word theos, which means God. And it actually means the fire of God's presence, theon what it means. And so Lucifer and Ezekiel chapter 28 used to walk among the, quote, fiery stones of God's presence. That's where this is. Or if you want to look in Revelation chapter 13, where the, the beast and all gets in the third angel's message, it says they, they, they burn in the sulfur and the fire goes up. For, and where does it happen? In the, quote, presence of the holy angels and the lamb. That's what happens. In their very presence this is where it's going on. You see, so if you think about sin, can you, is sin made out of physical matter. If I, if I burn that chair, am I burning some sin? If I take your big toe and cut it off and throw it in a fire, have I destroyed sin? Can you destroy sin by destroying matter? No, sin is not made out of matter. What's sin made out of? Ideas, attitudes, motives, which at their root are lies, Satan's father of lies. And what destroys lies? Truth and selfishness. Selfishness. What destroys selfishness? Which is also known as love. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And when the Spirit fell at Pentecost, they saw tongues of fire. You see how it all fits together? Isn't it beautiful? It all fits. And see, and, and this is this is part of the final message of mercy to go to the world that people can finally throw the shackles of these lies of Satan that the that the um, the gates of hell will not stand against the truth. We're going to smash them down. Well, you, if you're watching what's happening right now in the uh, Christian publishing world, there is a whole lot of stuff coming out now that are really debunking the whole eternal burning hell thing. There's movies coming out, uh, the Hell of Mr. Fudge. You haven't heard of that? There are several books coming out of it. There's websites about it. Um, the evangelicals all over are now rising up to re- really question this whole idea of eternal burning hell. Um, so they're questioning it, and they're just going to annihilation. But, oh, by the way, maybe I should just take a little side. You guys know the answer to this, so it'll be real quick. Which, is, which, which puts God in a worse light? Eternal burning hell, traditionally taught, or the traditional Adventist version, there's no eternal burning hell. God, and, and, it's, and we might re- we'll read this here in just a little bit, that God keeps them alive in the flames longer before he executes them. Oh. Which, which puts them in the worst light? The reason it's worse is because, because <laughs> the reason it's worse is because the eternal burning hell version is, is, is based on a premise that God created mankind in Eden with in, in, some aspect of his being that's immortal that can never die. And once he gave him immortality as a gift, it's his, he possesses it, and if he rebels, God's hands are tied, he can't help it, he's sad, his heart's breaking, he doesn't wish it was that way, he'd do anything to stop it, but they won't be with him, so they're shut out from his presence to suffer forever because they can't die. The traditional Adventist version is, well, men are mortal. Eternal life is a gift of God. So then, if that's the case, um, what, what's necessarily happening if somewhere, if this is physical fire that we're traditionally taught it is, stronger than a nuclear weapon because God's fire is more powerful than that, and they live for days and days in that fire, well, then that means God's performing a miracle in order to torture them. That's even worse, isn't it? Okay. Yes, Wendell. Going back to the light, the fire coming out, being in the presence of God as being lighting the earth, this is returning back to what um, it was the beginning. At creation, there was light before there ever was sun and stars. Yeah. If you go back to Genesis 1... And it goes back to Genesis 1, um, uh, 14 through 17. Let there be lights in the expanse to separate the day from the night and for signs and for seasons. It wasn't for light. 
This was for seasons. This was for governing the, the day and the night. The light was already there by his presence. And, and this world became a dark place when his presence was separated because we separated ourselves from him. And you get some allusions to that when Moses comes off the mountain. And Moses' face is doing what? Or Stephen, when he's being stoned, his face is described as the face of an angel. Or the Mount of Transfiguration, when you see the two human beings standing there with Christ, and they bright as the sun. So you get some of these uh, uh, hints that the Scripture gives us, plus the descriptions as in Daniel 7 and other places, the fiery presence of God. So yeah, that, that's well said. Um, I want to move on, yes. Well, just to say, that speaks to the why they're right when they say the fire burns eternally. Yeah, the fire burns eternally, but the suffering doesn't happen eternally. See, in, see, in the traditional view, there's suffering and physical flames being tortured forever. In the Adventist view, the fire burns only as long as it has stuff to burn on, and then it goes out. Think that through. Yes, in, the fi- in both views, the fire is to be avoided. When we should be saying, hey man, let's go to that fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. All right, um, the new, uh, let's, let's, uh, what happens now at the end? Tuesday's lesson, end of the thousand years. End of the thousand years, what happens? New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Filled with saints of God, God in Christ, angels, and the wicked humans are raised to life and are on the earth with wicked angels and Satan. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open, open. And a period of time goes by where the wicked build implements of war to attack the city. Now think it through with me. This goes to the whole idea if there was a question in your mind. Now the wicked are raised and they're on the earth. The New Jerusalem is here. Christ the saints are there. We're told the walls of the New Jerusalem are as clear as glass. You can see through them. You might have a loved one on the outside, so you make a poster. Johnny, it's great in here. Come on in, holding up on the wall. What happens? They don't want to come in. Why won't the gates are open? They're not being forced out. Why won't they come in? They don't trust it. Exactly right. They're so settled into the lie, they cannot be moved. Imagine you had a loved one inside the compound in Waco, the Branch Davidian compound in Waco before it burned. And they were on the inside and telling you, holding the sign up, it's wonderful in here. Come on in. Are you coming in? That's how they're going to view us. They're going to view us deluded and deceived. How could we not have tears and sadness when we see our loved ones outside the gates? I, we will. That's why the tears get wiped away at the end. I think. And see, and see, here's how Christ has to handle it all. He has to handle it all so that when it finally comes down to the final end, we can walk up to him and put our arms around him and say, it's okay, there's nothing more you could have done. Yeah. That's how he has to handle it. Yes? This may be rather simple, but how do they get the uh, furnishings for the weapons? <laughs> Well, I'm going to read to you out of a... Here's one, here's one description from one person. You can value it. You can reject it. Just one description for something to chew on and, and cogitate about. This is out of a book called Early Writings. This is uh, starting on page two, 292. It says, Then Jesus sent his retinue of holy angels and all the redeemed saints left the city. This is after the thousand years. The city's come back to earth. It's just settled on the earth. The wicked dead have been raised. The angels surrounded... The, and, and, and now they, they walk out of the city. The angels surrounded their commander and escorted him on his way. And the train of the redeemed saints followed. Then in terrible, fearful majesty, Jesus called forth the wicked dead, and they came up with the same feeble, sickly bodies that went into the grave. What a spectacle, what a scene. At the first resurrection, all came forth in immortal bloom, but at the second, the marks of the curse are visible on all. The kings and noblemen of the earth, the mean and low, the learned and unlearned come forth together. All behold the Son of Man, and those very men who despised and mocked him, who put the crown of thorns upon a sacred brow and smote him with the reed, behold him in all his kingly majesty. Those who spit upon him in the hour of his trial now turn from his piercing gaze and from the glory of his countenance. Those who drove the nails through his hands and feet now look upon the marks of his crucifixion. Those who thrust the spear in his side behold the marks of, the cru- of their cruelty on his body. And they know that he is the very one whom they crucified and derided in his in his expiring agony. And then there arises one long, protracted wail of agony. What's causing this wail of agony? No, truth. Is, is this being, are they being tortured? Are they being um, physically tortured in some way? Hmm. As they flee to hide from the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All are seeking to hide in the rocks to shield themselves from the terrible glory of him who they once despised and overwhelmed and pained with his majesty and exceeding glory. What's causing their pain? Realization. 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 Realization.
think it through, guys. This is not an infliction. The pain is coming from their own condition, from their own hardened hearts, from the awareness of who they are in contrast to who Christ is. It came from their own choice. From their own choice and their own character. Exactly. Um, and with one accord, raised their voices in the terrible distinction and exclaimed, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus and the holy angels, accompanied by all the saints, go again go to the city. And the bitter lamentations and wailing of the doomed wicked fill the air. Why are they wailing? See, where is this coming from? This is not an infliction. Um, then I saw that Satan again commenced his work. He passed among uh, his subjects and made the weak and feeble strong, uh, weak and feeble, strong, and told them that he and his angels were powerful. He pointed to the countless millions who had been raised. There were mighty warriors and kings who were skilled in battle and who had conquered kingdoms. And there were mighty giants and valiant men who had never lost a battle. There was the proud, ambitious Napoleon, whose approach what puts him where, you know where he's going to be, don't you? Okay. Uh, there was the proud and ambitious Napoleon, who approached the co- and, who, whose approach had caused kingdoms to tremble. There stood men of lofty stature and dignified bearing who had fallen in battle with with thirsting to conquer. As they come forth from their graves, get this, they resume the current of their thoughts where it ceased in death. They possess the same desire to conquer which ruled when they fell. Notice their characters are what their characters are. That's who they are. Oh, we got a couple more paragraphs to go here. Okay, Satan consults with his angels and then those kings and conquerors and mighty men. Then he looks over the vast army and tells them that the company of the city is small and feeble and that they can go up and take it and cast out the inhabitants and possess the riches and the glory themselves. Satan succeeds, this is the last paragraph, Satan succeeds in deceiving them and all immediately began to prepare themselves for battle. There are many skillful men in the vast army and they construct all kinds of implement of war. Now think, this, think the implications here, guys. Okay, the New Jerusalem's down. We've had this initial confrontation. We're back in the city. Now there's a period of time. They're building implements of war. Then, with Satan at their head, the multitude moves on. Kings and warriors follow close after Satan, and the multitude follows after in company. Each company has its leader, and order is observed as they march over the broken surface of the earth to the holy city. Next words, Jesus closes the gates of the city. So if he's closing them now, what does that mean? They were open. They were open up until the time they attack in mass. The city is there, the wicked on the earth, and the gates are open the entire time. Implication means the wicked were free to come in. God did not keep anyone out. They're kept out by their own choice. This is powerful, guys. Powerful. It's not what we've been t- typically told. She, he says there's a second chance. There is no second chance. There's always chance. Well, the, you know, the point is, I get what you're saying, but I mean, is this yet another chance for them to be saved? This is not another chance. This is the continuation of God who is always open for anyone to be reconciled. God's heart is always open to reconciliation. Always what? I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And anytime there is life, God's heart is for you. And so this is just another demonstration. I'm still for you guys. I'm here for you. But they won't let him in. Because their hearts are closed to him. His gates are not closed to them. This is huge. This is really powerful. So, um, Jesus, see people, people, that question you asked is a classic question for people who have the imposed law construct because they want to set it up and somehow, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. They get another chance and somebody else didn't get the, oh, that's not right. We, or maybe I don't have to take my chance now. I'll take my chance then. It's all kind of twisted. And then, and then it says, um, I'm just skipping down. And as they witness the splendor of their glittering crowns, the, 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 the righteous on the walls, and see their faces radiant with glory, reflecting the image of Jesus. Our faces reflecting what? The image. the image of Jesus. And then behold, the unsurpassed glory and majesty the King of kings and Lord of lords. Their courage fails. What's causing all this? What's causing it all? What we talked about earlier, each one of our hearts and minds are either going to be so settled in the truth about God and his character and his methods, the law has been written on the heart and mind, that when he comes, we shall see him face to face where we shall be like him. Or we've been so settled into the lie, the satanic mold, that no amount of truth will have any impact to persuade us. And, we, and, and we're beyond healing and restoration. 
Without the Holy Spirit, there is no conversion. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no conversion. Um, and we're already two minutes over, so I'm going to go ahead and close. Mm-hmm. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth about your kingdom of love, for how you've constructed your universe to operate in harmony with your own nature, for how you've given us the evidences of who you are both in creation and then in the life of Christ, how you have given us prophetic warnings and, and, and symbolic language to help teach us the, the realities of your kingdom, how you've set your spirit to enlighten our minds and send your spirit to us, heal, restore, draw the pieces together. May we be empowered with the ability to articulate this final message of mercy of your kingdom of love to free minds that are held in fear of you that we can prepare to meet you and you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.